Hello, I'm William Gallagher. I'm author of the British Film Institute book, BFI TV Classics, The Beiderbeck Affair, about Alan Plater's 1980s drama. Now, this 45-second title sequence, it was designed by Diana Dunn, who got a BAFTA nomination for it, and that head spinning around these albums, it's all taken by her from the set for Trevor Chaplin's flat, which she called the Bachelor Pad from Hell. There's nothing in this with the other half of the story. There's nothing with Jill Swinburne in it. It's all about Trevor and and she gathered it together in the still studio at Yorkshire TV, summer 1984 or so. Now, at this kind of distance, uh, this time, actually wait for that credit to appear and look how crisp that text is. This whole sequence was shot on 35mm film and because the sequence had to be used for each of the six episodes and some of those credits changed, so it needed to stand up somewhere and tear. Now we're in the show proper and you can see the picture quality has dropped just a touch. This is 16mm film and it doesn't seem to have lasted quite as well. Uh, the opening episode title, every episode title is named after the first line of dialogue, except the very last episode of the very last series, The Beiderbeck Connection. Uh, I don't know why. This school, by the way, this is the school that became known throughout the show as San Quentin High. Alan Plater's original notes called it East Lane Comprehensive, but just once nipped it in there in a little sketchy note. And it was really two schools. Filming was done, uh, this is... Foxwood School in Seacroft, but there was also Abbey Grange School in Leeds. Most of what you'll see around here, the exteriors, anyway, was Foxwood, which Wikipedia has just told me was demolished in 2010, so that'd be about 26 years after this was shot. James Bolam there as Trevor Chaplin. This was his first role after the uh, sitcom Only When I Laugh, which is all, like Beiderbeck was made by Yorkshire Television. Uh, but of course, by then he was already famous for, well, the, the Likely Lads, whatever happened to the Likely Lads, when the boat comes in, so much stuff. And of course, he's continued acting since, most recently, New Tricks. And behind him there, Barbara Flynn as Jill Swinburne. Got to tell you, Barbara Flynn was fantastic about my book. She had kept this huge amount of documents and cuttings and photographs, and she loaned me the lot. It was very generous of her, and I was terrified until I brought it back. Actually, I've got to tell you this, because this embarrasses me. Of course, I've got to tell you then. Can you just listen for a little line here? Jokes won't do. After all the interviews were done for the book, I was talking, I was chatting away with Barbara Flynn and with Shirley Rubenstein, Alan Plater's wife. Uh, I can't remember how we got to this point, but at some point, just completely unthinkingly, just automatically, I said, jokes won't do. And there was this little laugh from beside me. 30-odd years now after filming that scene, Barbara Flynn recognised her own line from the Beiderbeck event. What Trevor doesn't understand is quite interesting, actually, because here, as you see it in the final show, it's our way for Alan Plater to introduce these characters, fill us in on what they've done before. It's our exposition, really, plain and simple, setting us up of what we need to know. But as originally written, it was the reverse. It wasn't anything new. It was a recap because the Beiderbeck affair was written, um, all of it, all six parts and practically every line of dialogue was written as a direct sequel to a 1981 Alan Potter drama called Get Lost. Alan Armstrong and Bridget Turner had starred in this four-part drama about two school teachers uh, called Neville and Judy. They were Trevor and Jill in all but name. And actually, it's just slightly weird. Now, you can see that Get Lost on, on the very good network DVD release of the Binderbeck trilogy that's included as an extra there. And, and it's a fascinating watch. It's like proto 
Spiderbeck. It isn't very good. It has some great moments. It doesn't work, and you can understand. It feels like a rehearsal for this, an expensive four-part rehearsal for this. And it's interesting, and and you'll enjoy it. And I really recommend checking it out. But it isn't as good as all this. What was weird for me, though, going through the paper copies of the script, was to see, well, this was all written in the 1980s, when there were word processors, but none really worthy of the name. So everything was typed out and printed and handwritten and stuff. And reading the original scripts, they were called Get Lost Revisited, and that title was tipexed out and the Beck Affair typed over it and then every page had all of this very familiar Trevor and Jill dialogue but written to be said by Neville and Judy and each page had a typed extra note at the top NB it said Neville becomes Trevor Judy becomes Jill and all of this was because Alan Armstrong wasn't available to return to the role if he hadn't gone to Broadway we wouldn't have had the Biderbeck affair this, I said before that Diana Dunn got all that stuff out of the set for Trevor's flat, but strictly speaking, it wasn't a set. It is actually in the building. Everything you see is in through this window. That, the window hasn't just been set up for this one shot, but it was dressed as a flat, and you'll see the flashing lights there for when the doorbell goes and things. All of that moved into the title sequence. I especially like how the music on Trevor's headphones stops here as he meets Janie, Sue Jenkins. And I said that practically every line of this was written as a get lost sequel, and it's true, but it is amazing how different the two shows were. Uh, recasting makes a big difference, of course, but also Alan Payton made tiny, tiny changes of emphasis that made giant differences. And there's a key example in this scene. Here, for example, Trevor Chaplin, he's a jazz freak school teacher, and in a minute you'll see he's trying hard not to look at Janie's legs. That's it. In the original script, every one of these words was the same, and Neville, as he was, was also a jazz freak school teacher, but he also he had this extra layer. He had this fantasy of being a private detective. That's because Get Lost, I, this is going to feel daft, I'm going to say it felt like more of a crime drama. I mean, it's not like it was CSI Beiderbeck, but compared to this, it was much more directly about investigating a mystery. One of the few things that was directly removed from the script when it was changed to be the Beiderbeck affair was that both Neville and Judy used to do a voiceover. It was a, a real side-of-the-mouth detective narration. Now, that happened a lot in Get Lost. It cropped up sometimes in the scripts for what was Get Lost Revisited, and then Alan Payton removed all but one of them from the Beiderbeck affair. You're thinking, I don't remember a line of voiceover, but I'll point out what it became when it comes up. So um, I'm saying that in comparison to Get Lost, Spiderbeck is crime-free. Very little actually appears to happen. It appears to happen. But oddly, this one show, it seems to me that embodies, it seems to embody the entire writing career of the late Alan Plater. Uh, it's easy, you could just easily say that he's best known now for this, but he, did, he was uh, famed too for getting emails. He was famed for Fortunes of War, Zed Cars, Land of Green Ginger, my own personal favourite, Mysterioso, and in fact, literally hundreds more. Yet somehow, of all of that, this one show stands for the lot of them. Even, it's also, it's so different from the rest of them. I think, I think that's because 
Divided Back Affair, it kind of it brings you Alan Plater. It brings you the man as well as his work. Now, I'm slightly biased in this because I actually met Alan Plater because of Bidebeck and, funnily enough, because of the British Film Institute. I mean, I'm, I'm right, I've written this book for them now about this. But uh, I'm a dramatist and I'm an author now, but I started in journalism. Uh, I started in journalism in the late-ish 1980s, and I actually started by interviewing Alan for primetime, what was then the BFI's television magazine. And actually, I, I, for some reason, I can still picture that day. Alan Plater, very laid back, relaxed, everything you would imagine actually from the way he writes. He was very open, he was willing to talk about anything, but he was also pin sharp about what he would and would not say on the record. Um, and I can see Alan's wife, Shirley Rubenstein, uh, bring us in a cup of tea and being surprised that we got down to the interview so very quickly. Because I remember thinking, oh, proper grown-up journalists must take their time. I'll keep that in mind. And, and I remember their dog, the Duke, named after Duke Ellington, who decided to sit on my feet for the entire conversation. So heavy, so warm. I had a lovely time in that uh, this beautiful London flat uh, they had at the time. And I never wrote about Alan again, not for 20 odd years. The next, and before the book, the last time I wrote anything about Alan was interviewing Shirley for Radio Times after he died in 2010. You think of all the things he did in between those times, one of him, all the television and the plays and the radio, but I didn't write about him because Alan and Shirley became friends of mine, and it, you know, it just never occurred to me to see them as interviewees again. Since uh, since my Bidebook book, book was announced, um, I have been asked uh, a lot, actually, if I will write a biography of Alan. And, and, you know, part of me wants to, but the answer's no. I think there should be a biography of him. He did this really nice book called Dogging Around, which he always claimed, it kind of presented as a series of anecdotes, but it was really an autobiography. It's a, a tremendous read. I do recommend it. Somebody should surely do a bio of Alan properly, but... I don't think I could do it. Uh, there is a short one, I should say. There's a short one in my book, um, but the aim of it is to put Beidebeck in the context of his just am amazingly long career. Uh, but, you know, sorry, forgive me, this is, a bit, this is kind of maudlin and personal. I think if I wrote a bio of Alan, the, the journalism part of my brain would kick in and he'd become an exercise in research and writing uh, rather than, you know, my old friend. Whereas I thought... I could write about the Beidebeck affair very easily. I mean, I've watched it many times over the years. I loved it at the time. It's a tremendous piece of work and it's a joy to watch even now. As it turned out, writing the book, it was as much about getting out of the way of all of the people involved in the show. Because it's, you know, it's a small book and there were so many people and they had so much to tell me. And they were so happy to contribute. James Burlam actually gave me a rare... Oh, quick aside. Can I just tell you this? So, uh, James Bellamy, um, maybe you know, he has a reputation in journalism for just simply never doing interviews. Uh, so I was in Birmingham Central Library reading back issues of TV Times, and he had given them an interview for, uh, I think uh, I think it was the Beidebeck Tapes, the first sequel to Affair. But then when it came to the last TV show, The Beidebeck Connection, uh, 1988, TV Times ran this feature and made a big deal about how they got James Boland to give one of these rare interviews. He never speaks to the press, said TV Times, but he talked to us for an exclusive new interview. 
And then it was open quotes and straight into a verbatim reprint of the previous one. I mean, I, I laughed and I, can say I got glared at in the library because of it. I suppose I should, I should say then, shouldn't I? Don't, he genuinely did talk to me. I really enjoyed it too. It was just uh, an hour or so chatting over a cup of tea uh, in BBC Television Centre. And, and here's the thing. You know he didn't talk to me because I'm, I'm me. He'd never heard of me before. He talked because this was the Beck affair. He was really specific about this. He wanted to talk. He wanted to contribute. He wanted to do this for Alan Plater and Shirley Rubinstein. I just said to you, didn't I, that um, Beidebeck feels like the embodiment of Alan Plater himself. And Bellum says that too. It is him, he said to me. That wonderful laid-back humour. Uh, but actually, just watch. We just have a quick nip into the van there. Just have a look. That's how Alan Plater dressed. Okay. Um, both Alan and Shirley used to tell the story of how Alan suddenly noticed that Yorkshire Television's costume department had dressed Bolam exactly that way, exactly the way Alan dresses. Uh, they're on location. It was it was at least days, if not weeks, maybe even whole episodes into the series, and Alan Plater suddenly spots it where Shirley knew from the start and um, I know it happened they told me that it happened where it was actually during a location filming shot at the school for one of Trevor Chaplin's yeah these long walks you've already seen some of that from the staff room to the woodwork room at San Quentin High now possibly at that same location at the same time someone from Methuen the publishers asked Alan if he'd consider turning his Beidebeck scripts into novels. Matthew in Day, by then they would have already have published many of his play scripts, uh, including Close the Coal House Door, uh, which maybe you know was successfully revived in 2012. And, you know, they'd read the Beidebeck scripts just like the rest of them. And obviously they'd liked them, but more than the story and the characters, though, what they'd really latched onto was Alan's way of writing stage directions. Now, um, lots of writers do very little. Uh, exterior school, they get out of car, he's unhappy, she has an orange. I don't know, something like that. Others write reams of flowing prose. And usually, either is fine, because nobody cares. Actors and directors famously, infamously, ignore every word except dialogue. Alan wanted them to read the directions. Not just in Beidebeck, but in all his scripts. So the tone and the humour that you see here on screen was also in his writing of the stage directions. Never to be seen by the public, only to be seen by the actors and the crew, but it worked. Actors read them. And so there was Matthew saying, go on, write a book in that style. And Alan Plater did write a novel at the Beidebeck Affair. Then he wrote uh, two more Beidebecks, uh, two more novels. Um, I, I said a minute ago, deny that Mysterioso uh, is a personal favourite of mine of his entire career, but actually it's the novel more than the later TV version he did. I don't know why, actually. I mean, Mysterioso, it's out of print. You can still get copies. They're floating around eBay, but the TV show, which isn't as good, but it is quite good, and it hasn't been shown since its first airing, as far as I know. It's not on DVD, wasn't on VHS. Um... The book itself, my favourite, there are some themes from Beidebeck in there, but uh, I'm only saying that just to give you an excuse to continue listening to me going off the point. Uh, it's a low-key story, quite small, quite deceptively simple novel, but I think I read Mysterio so first in one sitting, certainly no more than two, and I know I must have read it ten times. This is one of those walks 
by the way. So Alan Plater and Shirley Rubenstein were probably watching as this was filmed. I've read Mysterioso at least 10 times in the last 20 years. The last time that I saw Alan Plater uh, would have been uh, just a week or two before his death in mid-2010. Um, there was World Cup on the telly, or Euro something. It was football. It's one of those. Um, and I was there and we were talking and he's, yeah, he was paying more attention to the football. He's long since given up on me in that line and wasn't, I was trying to work out, are we watching highlights? Uh, is that a replay or just very similar to the last minute? Or was it a live match and which side was which again? But we came to some gap in the, the action and we got talking. And for some reason, I don't know why, we talked briefly about Mysterioso. Um, I'd mentioned it to him uh, before, but I told him then what I just told you, that I'd read it 20 odd times. Bless you, he said. I've not read it since I wrote it. I told him then it was therefore my book, not his. So there. And it really feels like that. If, for me, with Mysterioso and with my it's very easy to just enjoy Alan Plater's work. I mean, there's so much, and most of it works so well at the time. Most of it stands up over time, but he can also get right inside you. And I think that happened most often with the Beck affair. I think it happened to him, too, because it was the only thing he ever wrote that he did a direct sequel to. Now, he did lots of Zed Cars episodes with the same characters there. He did rework... Um, in 2000, he did a BBC film, Last of the Blonde Bombshells, with Judy Dench, and he later reworked that into a long run. In fact, reworked it a couple of times into several long-running theatre tours as Blonde Bombshells of 1943. Um, and uh, you, there's an argument, isn't there, that he came back to the sort, the flavour of Beiderbeck uh, with Oliver's Travels in the 1990s, which I was less keen on and didn't seem to quite connect as much but it was only really jill swinburne there with the books trevor chaplin here it only with these two characters only actually a big owl little norm and average size mrs swinburne that alan plater wanted to just come back to these characters and explore them more actually that reminds me sorry quick aside again i should tell you and as well as the three tv series and the three novels that went with them alan plater wrote just one more Binderbeck story. It's not so well known. Um, after a plan to revive the show in the 1990s had failed, he turned uh, that plan, uh, one page note, into a 15-minute short story that he wrote especially for BBC Radio 4, An Evening with Richard Wagner. Uh, it was produced by the late Julian Hush and it was read by Barbara Flynn in character as Jill Swinburne and it's uh, the only time she's ever returned to the role. She said to me, thank God. I, I remember saying, uh, thank God he'd asked me to do it. I would have been furious if he'd got someone else. She said. The short story has never been published, uh, except now it has. You can read the whole piece in my BFI TV Classics book. This has, this has by the way, Jules has. Uh, it was in, well, it still is, in Kirkstall in Leeds. Yorkshire Television bought it for this show, and they actually kept it for a while after filming. Um, apparently, producer lived in there for a time. Um, it was sold before the filming of the sequel, the Beiderbeck tapes, and that is, that's one reason Jill's house was changed for that show and the Beiderbeck connection too. 
Um, this 4LP set of Bix Spybet, well, it isn't, is it? You're going to see in a moment that it isn't the 4LP set, but the 4LP Bix Spybet set that he wanted was real. Um, I know it's true. Alan Plater told me so at the time, but I haven't been quite. I wasn't able to quite prove it in time enough to put it in my book. To the best of my knowledge, though, uh, the set is called uh, was called Bix Spybet. The studio groups 1927 to 1930 and it was on the world record club label long deleted of course but you can find i think it came out in 1981 uh, you can find copies in hidden corners of the internet um don't expect if you do listen to that or any other uh bix albums don't expect to hear music that you know from the Beck affair though do you know this already there's not a single note of big spider music in in this or any of the sequels and the key reason for that is money it is considerably i mean it's considerably cheaper to record your own cover version of a track or to do versions inspired by than it is to buy the rights to use the originals in a tv show um as you might expect a lot of jazz fans were upset about this at the time and they complained to yorkshire television um but thank god why tv couldn't afford it because since they had to redo the music they commissioned frank ricotti to write a whole score in the style of bix by the and he did he based much of it on bix originals um the main theme for example that's a version of bix by the crying all night um but otherwise he got to write a whole score and he got to write it for the finish the the edited program i mean actually even that main theme to my mind is better than the original would have been. Um, I'm not a musician. It's hard to describe the difference. But uh, to me, even when the notes are exactly the same and, and the volume is the same of it, Ricotti's version, it sounds to me more like a, a clarion call, an announcement of the start of a show where Bix's were, was, is more incidental. And then, because he was able to record it right to the scenes as edited, uh, we Frank Ricotti's music, we get gags like this. I just coming up in a moment here. Nice jaunty music we go along, and then just a little bit of. love that stuff that's harry and jason's theme so now we know who lives in that house but not only does she'll not know now she never knows that is a joke meant entirely for us and done entirely in music and a bit with a dog barking that's actually not in the script i was surprised to find this most of the gags along the way are alan Plater's known for his jokes in dialogue um but all the little side points that you will see in a moment of what happens when people reject the leaflets they're all written but that one and the musical one was not frank ricotti says that uh, you can't really remember the details of course it's a long time ago now for everybody but it would have been done either by him in the work or in conjunction with the director david reynolds and the joy for drama for me is collaboration and that's why you get moments like this One thing I didn't notice uh, or didn't think about when I first saw this uh, was the age difference between Trevor and Jill. I mean, not that it matters in itself or in this, but he is older, and the book of the Biderbeck affair specifies that he is 10 years older. Neville and Judy, though, in the original show, they were more the same age as each other, I think. And it does make a difference later on. Um, it's in, in the short story that's in my book, and in uh, at least one of the, the failed attempts to revive the show 
on TV because there's one of those. Uh, it's set quite a bit later. Nineties um, might have been two thousand for this one. Time has moved on in the Biderbeck universe. Begins Alan Plater's document about the revival, and Jill has taken over as head of school. She's now running San Quentin High in this. And Trevor, uh, by then, had taken early retirement, left the school, and was to be found most days playing bowls with Big Al and Little Norm. The, those little lamp things Trevor's putting out. Uh, Jill mentioned them earlier and said she remembered this room being full of, um, did you call them standard lamps? Big, tall things. It was like the Forest of uh, Dean or Arden, one of those. Uh, it was in the previous show. So it's not the same woodwork room. It's not the same woodwork teacher. But Jill is remembering what that room was like in Get Lost uh, when she wasn't the same character. Better crane shot, similar one to the opening start. David Reynolds, the director, says that they used crane shots, uh, which were always done by Peter Jackson, by the way, the cameraman. Um, one cameraman throughout the whole run, I believe. Uh, they were done to give you a sense of place, so you could just see where everything was. And he also said shots like this through the window. Actually, it was talking more about through the windows of Jill's house, the place that you could look in on the action, that you were joining it, kind of thing. Funny thing, uh, Jill and Trevor, they don't often speak of clues and mysteries. Like, I mean, Jill's disparaging the whole idea right there. Whereas, again, in the original show, Neville and Judy, they did. Alan Plater liked crime fiction. I, he used to, well, I was, I was going to say mock, and that's too strong a word. Well, he definitely said this with a twinkle. Uh, Alan Plater said that he started his career on Zed Cars and he ended it on Lewis. Now, OK, if you ignore everything else and only look at those two police series still you get stories like the zed cars episode a quiet night uh it, it's possibly the most famous zed cars in the morning certainly plato said it was the one of his that he was most asked about and so here it is it's a one-hour episode uh, of what's called a police procedural series and in it nothing happens also, also it appears there's no crime let's say that there's certainly no car chase or anything, but there's no crime either there is a death uh, and it shook me actually um, the episode no longer exists in the archive but the script was published and it's this bare sparse uh, powerful read it stays with you where i would suggest that you're going to find it hard to name one episode of law and order or even possibly tell me the difference between the next one Get Lost had this much more conventional mystery and clues than that, that Zed Cars or this Biderbeck. Um, we learnt uh, right back at the start of this episode of the Biderbeck Affair that Jill threw her husband out. and But that when she was Judy and the show was Get Lost Revisited, uh, she didn't. In Get Lost, her husband, Judy's husband, left her instead. He walked out, he vanished. So the start of Get Lost is actually this English schoolteacher trying to find out what has happened to her husband. Uh, she then gets help from this woodwork teacher and they've gone to the police. It's all, it's all actually rather more serious. It's funny, it's light, 
but at the heart is something quite serious. It's a missing husband versus getting uh, the George Formby Songbook Volume 3 and Everyday Spanish for Beginners instead of Big Spiderbeck. And funny, I think this is one reason the Get Lost doesn't work very well. It's uh, it's not strong enough to be uh, crime fiction. It's not crime-free enough to really feel like Alan Plato. What it does do is give Neville and Judy impetus. They have an actual mystery to solve where Trevor and Jill only have an annoyance. And in fact, Jill's not that bothered about it. This is as far as investigating and detecting and clues get Jill and Trevor. Aristophanes Street. Um, like every possible detective show in the world, their first attempt to find out what's going on fails. But I think, unlike every other detective show in the world, they stop. And you actually kind of agree with them. What else can they do? It's all over. Put up with it. Maybe write a letter to Watchdog. J Janie and the albums are gone. If you if you did read Jules' manifesto, if you could zoom in on your telly or or do the perfectly reasonable thing I did and spend some time repairing old photos in Photoshop very closely, you'd see that actually those green leaflets they have nothing to do with conservation or Jules' cancer. The title does, but the main text. Look, I didn't include this in the book because there wasn't space and it's staff, but I can tell you, the text actually begins, the room was full of tears and whimpering. I found this, and the, the complete text is really badly typed and things, and I couldn't see if it, it looked like it was from a book. I told Shirley Rubenstein what I found, she dug into it for me, came back saying that it appears to be a report of the release of mercenaries from Angola in 1984. Obviously, someone had just typed up the nearest block of text they found. But take this as a measure of the, the care that went into Biderbeck. All these years on, Shirley was surprised anyone on the show had been that lazy. And she says Alan Plato would have been annoyed. You cannot see this text on the show, but details matter. Just a quick aside, this was always one of my, my favourite visual gags in the series. Uh, Jill is striding up her side of the street, delivering those manifestos, while opposite her, Trevor trudges up his side, weighed down, we bought and delivering a few years yet somehow they managed to get up the hill at exactly the same rate it's a nice gag but it was also done for a technical reason we're cutting here from uh, one shot to the other but the music is playing across both and the shots were specifically done to be equal time in order to give frank ricotti the right timings to fit the music and what i've just talked over is the discovery of the cub trevor gave up the mystery he stopped and now we've seen the cub. Game on. Just to nip back um, to the previous thought, uh, the business about the details of it. I really do think they matter in this. Um, if there's one thing I learnt from uh, researching and studying the Biodebeck Affair for my BFI book, it is that it's, it's a really delicate piece of work. I don't think it looks it, but you know, you go an inch one way and it would have been uh, daft and inconsequential. Go an inch the other way and it would have been get lost again. You know, not bad, but not quite working. And certainly nothing special. Certainly nothing that would warrant the attention and, and I would say the love that this show still conjures 
in people. There is another demolition site, by the way, in the sequel, the Binderbeck tapes, when uh, Trevor's flat is knocked down and, and maybe echoing a bit of what he's just had Jill and Trevor say about the state of the community and redevelopment. Uh, Alan Plato wrote in his notes or his stage directions for the tapes that it should be easy enough to find another building being torn down. The Beinebeck Affair was shot over several months in the summer of 1984, before it aired in January 1985, and you're about to see the first shot on the first day. Here it is. TV Times was apparently present for some of this, or interviewed very closely afterwards, and they reported, well, they reported two things. Um, apparently a light fell down uh, and hit one of the crew, um, and also, said TV Times, James Bone got kicked on the shin by one of the cubs, uh, and that Bellum had said to them, uh, "This uh, he thought, oh God, six months of this, it's going to be terrible. This kick was, according to TV Times, a bad omen. But as you're going to see in a moment, he was meant to be kicked. TV Times is actually one of the few places that had seen the programme at that time. Uh, in the quotes for it, the cast had been talking and mentioned that they hadn't seen it yet. Uh, so you... Uh, words fail you sometimes about the... Accuracy of television journalism. I know this is completely silly and trivial, but just look at that lad. He's supposed to be about eight years old. So now he would be older. Funny enough, she didn't, actually. You could wind back and listen to yourself exactly what was said, and that wasn't one of them. The Binderbeck Affair has mistakes in it, things that don't quite add up, and there are bigger ones than that. Later on in episodes two and three, you have characters not knowing each other when they've already met, or at least not recognising each other when they've just met uh, than the day before in story time. But you get the odd thing like this, where a line doesn't quite add up. It's an unusual thing, because usually, for all that he says, and appears everybody appears to agree that nothing goes on in Alan Plater plays, the plots are very careful. They're actually incredibly well-structured and re really well-worked out. I mean, the, the underpinnings are very strong. But just every now and again, you get a little burr like that, a little error. In the books for the Biderbeck Affair, by the way, this house was described as being on a pixie estate, that it was uh, bought at the insistence of Jill's husband when, at a time when she um, still played lip service to honour and obeying. One thing about Alan Plater, especially by uh, this time in the mid-80s when he'd been writing professionally for, uh, well, a couple of decades, um, he always knew how long his material would run for. I mean, he knew how many pages the script should be. Um, if you're not a writer and you've had no reason to ever think about this, you've probably got the word duh in your head. Now, but it is actually enough of an issue, a real issue, that in another series in his career, Plato was told that his scripts were running about 10 minutes short. And he told me about this later himself. And he said that at the time he disagreed, but eventually he did agree. And he wrote some more pages just to answer this issue. And then when it came to the filming and the editing, the first cut of each episode was, yes, of course, you got it. it was 10 minutes too long. The result of this is, 
he was so precise with this that when you go through his screenplays it is really rare to find something that didn't make the final cut there is nothing cut away for time reasons for example not usually but there was one just here just now between the bedroom at the start of the act and the, the walking out through the pixie estate there was a long scene cut uh, set over breakfast it had more plots and clues and a bit of mystery in it so i think it's really telling that we just obviously simply didn't need that scene at all it's not like you suspected one was missing um, but you heard that line just now about Trevor asking, can you get ice creams at the film theatre? He's referring to the conversation they had in that cut scene. I told you earlier that there were that there used to be a lot of voiceover lines, a side of the mouth detective drawl kind of thing in Get Lost and that they were. But listen There it is. That's the only surviving voiceover line. Now it wasn't voiceover there, but it was in the original version. Much of the action uh, well, a lot of the action in Get Lost was described by voiceover narration and in the original drafts of the Beiderbeck affair there was quite a bit. Plato had obviously already trimmed it back but between the change from Get Lost to Beiderbeck uh, he just trained, he got rid of it completely, put a line, a pen line through each one except that which became uh, a little murmur. Kevin Smith there as Mr. Wheeler. Um, described in the script as he's in his 50s, quiet, shifty, and with the capacity to be mean. A throwback to the days when teachers were expected to be humorless and sarcastic, except he's generally sincere. And that's Dominic, uh, excuse me, Dominic Jeffcutt as Sergeant Hobson, BA. Do you know, I don't think we ever know his first name, but uh, by the time of the Bidebeck connection, he's become Inspector Hobson, PhD. Actually, up to now, we've had about uh, 40 minutes of reasonably straight names. Um, Trevor Chaplin, named after Charlie. Uh, Jill Swinburne is named after a goalkeeper or a right winger or something football. Anyway, and then there's been Mr. Carter, there's been Mr. Wheeler. But um, Bybeck's known for its names, and I suppose we, well, it's, in an odd way, we have had Janie. She hasn't actually been named yet, but she's already become known in this episode as the dazzlingly beautiful platinum blonde. That's even more of a, a label, um, a recurring phrase, a name, really, in the novel, uh, where it's used so much. It's used to the point where Plato actually starts referring to her as, um, hang on, sorry, I've got to get this right, the DBPB. Uh, we've also had uh, the man with the dog, and uh, he hasn't been named. Either. I can't think of a modern drama that would do that, that doesn't ram the character's name down your throat the first time you see them, and then usually many times after that. It's, I've not noticed that before. I didn't think of that when I was writing the book. But actually, it's about to happen again, this um, not naming uh, people. Oh, uh, it fits, I suppose this is deliberate, but it seems very fitting. Now, this is uh, it's going to happen at the... Oh, sorry, one side point. Look at this camera work by Peter Jackson. 
And as we pull back slightly, you notice the reflection in the police car. Not everybody sees that, but that must have taken so long to set up. Gorgeous piece of work. Um, we're about to head off to the Alderman, what's his name, Memorial Playing Fields. Um, it's actually, if you want to get really anarchy, that's Butcher Hill Playing Fields in Abbey Grange in Leeds. I just want to be useful there. Um, so just rambling. Actually, at the Alderman, what's his name, Memorial Playing Fields, we are going to meet uh, Terence Rigby and Danny Schiller, playing characters that we'll learn only next week in episode two, are called Big Al and Little Norm. Actually, uh, when I first thought about writing a book about the show, both of those men, Terry Rigby, Danny Schiller, they were really high on my mental list of people to interview. But Rigby died in 2008, I'm afraid, uh, 24 years after this. And Danny Schiller died even earlier, 2003, just 19 years after this. I did like, though, coming across um, an old interview with Alan Plater, uh, where he said, he's talked about uh, the actors in this and said in particular what a great pleasure it was to know, as he was writing, that Terry Rigby was going to come along later and lend a, a Samuel Beckett-like weight to his words. If, you, if you're not already listening to this on my website, by the way, do take a look there, bythebeck.williamgallagher.com. Um, I've also made jazz.williamgallagher.com uh, for the heart of spelling. Do you know, I said that to somebody the other day, and they were offended. Who can't spell by the back? They said, it's easy. B-E-E. <clears throat> okay. Um, you will find my book, and uh, there's stuff about my book and the show on there, including, the thing I particularly like, um, a lot of photographs. Um, I can't tell you how many Barbara Friend loaned me these gorgeous photographs from the show and cuttings and things. Um, just, there was far too many to ever squeeze into the book. Um, so I'm trying to put out a lot of there on um, the website. Um, also on Facebook, by the way. If you have a look on Facebook at um, facebook.com slash wgauthor. Um, I'm putting bits on there as well. This is on there lurking away, so you may already have found it. News and extra material, mostly about the Biderbeck affair at the moment, but um, I am working on another book and various other things that are coming up, uh, so they'll be on there too. I first saw uh, the By the Beck Affair when it was repeated. Um, I missed the first airing in 85, so I know it was soon afterwards. Uh, I think it was 85 or 86 or so. Um, I ha just for fun over the years, I, I can't remember how often I've, I've seen it, but easily half a dozen times, and, you know, purely for fun. I remember showing it to my sister-in-law uh, over various Christmases, I can't remember, did I really make a wait a year for episode two? I might have done that. Um, uh, and then, of course, I've written the books, and I definitely can't tell you how many times I've watched it during the writing of the book. But I sit here, uh, frankly, bending your ear off, and I'm watching it again, and I'm still enjoying it. I think either the Biderbeck affair is exceptional, or, or I am a freak, and either is highly possible. Actually, once or twice as I was writing the book. Um, the BFI TV Classics range. Um, it's British Film Institute. It's a serious study of shows that are important, that are that make a claim and are classics of the genre, particularly British television, but not 
or just drama in particular, comedies as well, strong programmes treated very seriously. Um, and once or twice, as I was writing it, I found myself getting really serious. Um, if you and I were going to do a commentary for episode two, for example, the kind of serious level getting to is I would be pointing out how the end of this episode does not match the start of the next as it's supposed to. Um, and in the book I do point out there is a gorgeous gag coming up when uh, Trevor sees Janie and I adore the way the sound just blows away it's as if on a breeze and for that little moment we are inside Trevor's head love that kind of stuff uh, and I don't mind, I don't feel too anoraki commenting on that um, but I did I also got really detailed about the thematic structure of the Bayer-de-Beck affair. Um, I promise you that's not in the book now. I dialed it down a bit, but at times it was so intense. Middle of the night, writing away, Bayer-de-Beck in the corner, interview audio going through. I, I'd i be in my office, right, um, one o'clock in the morning, kind of scrubbing the video back and forth, a frame or three or something, to check some pixel detail and then i'd analyze it to phd level and i was doing this one night i swear i felt i could see alan plato just looking at me like that actually looking at me like you're doing now and uh i dialed down the academia a bit Alan Plato died in uh, 2010, and, and he was a friend. One of the, the joys of writing this book was that I got to natter about him, most especially with his wife and my friend, Shirley Rubenstein. She was immensely useful. She was also the very first person I interviewed. Uh, uh, I listen to that tape now, and, and I sound so nervous. I, I, don't think, I didn't know what to cover. I'm not, I wasn't really sure then quite what I was after, I was kind of feeling my way into the subject, but also it was about Alan and it hadn't that long. To, I wasn't really sure how to approach things. Um, you will see for yourself in the book how good Shirley was. I, I did the index, I wrote the index to my book the other day, and it is ludicrous how often I quote from that one afternoon's chat with her. Um, I am kind of running out of time and a bit of breath amazingly um let me quickly also say some things uh thank you for listening and i hope you've enjoyed this as much as i have i just love a good natter so do email me at wg at williamgallagher.com if you know you want to get a word in yourself um and my book bfi tv classics the biderbeck affair is published 28 september 2012 in the uk and various dates in october and november around the world this is a completely silly thing, but I found the book's on sale on Amazon Japan. And I look at that page, and it's wonderful. All I can recognise is the title and my book, and it seems to be a lot of yen there. It's coming out uh, November time, I think, then. Um, drop me an email, actually, and I'll, just, I'll send you a link to your local Amazon store. Also, um, uh, thinking about things like this, uh, it's very important. I have no connection with this. I'm, I only wrote the book. But I've got to tell you about Network DVD's release of the whole Biodebeck trilogy on DVD. I mentioned this earlier, but it, it's really... Hang on. You are watching the first episode as I blather along, aren't you? Suddenly, like, we're, we're an hour into this. Um, I'm wondering if you're listening while watching one of the repeats on digital TV. I should, I am now, I'm sure I should have thought more about the commercial breaks. I, I'm not sure whether the repeats get edited. That's a, that's a painful thought. 
Um, but actually, so much else does. You've got to expect it does happen somewhere. So this shot here with Big Al on the, the left, Little Norm on the right, advertised Mrs. Swimmer in the middle. Barbara Finn told me that that moment, uh, you know, sometimes you just have a very clear, precise visual memory of something like I did uh, when I first interviewed Alan. She does of that point in the film, just a very visual slice of time and a strong and a very happy memory. She said, such wonderful, wonderful times. Um, uh, I think you about, sorry, about the episode and the links and when you're watching it. Um, tell you what, the time code on the episode in front of me, episode one, says that we are 47 minutes and 47, 48, 49, 50 seconds into the Beiderbeck affair. If you're way, way, way off, there, there is nothing we can do about it, is there? But at least we understand. Had we done it? Right, sorry, back up on backing up. Network DVD. If you're watching this in any other way than their particularly good DVD release of the whole trilogy, um, do get it. There was an earlier release by somebody, I don't think it was Network, that has a series, it's kind of okay, but the, look for Network DVD, the Binderbeck trilogy. It's particularly well done. It has um, there's the soundtrack album in there. Lots of little local news bulletins from the filming and interviews with the cast, contemporaneous materials. Andrew Pixley has written a, a very good DVD viewing notes booklet and of course it has the three Biderbeck shows plus as an extra the whole of Get Lost and you've got to see Get Lost just to appreciate the Biderbeck affair. Do you know I think I'm actually supposed to be plugging my book here not their DVD but it is good and you, you can always buy both can't you and don't you deserve it? if nothing else, for having listened to me for 49 minutes and two seconds. Cheers very much for doing that. Take care now. Bye-bye.